0: All right, go and grab your Bibles and open up with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. I was just, just talking with Miss Connie that I think one of the things I've really enjoyed about studying through First and Second Kings is this is one of those periods in Jewish history that, that most of us are kind of fuzzy on. So we know about the Exodus, and we know about Joshua, and maybe we know a few of the Judges' stories, right? We know Samson and some of those stories. And when it gets to the kings, we know about David. We know a little bit about Solomon. But once you get past the story of Solomon, there's a pretty big gap in most of our minds about what God was doing in those days. And so it's great to study First and Second Kings because that's the time period that it focuses on. We're looking at the monarchy of Israel, um, and, and we're in this unique period in that The great nation of Israel has split into two empires. So I mention this every week. The two southern tribes have stayed loyal to the line of Davidic kings. The ten northern tribes have broken away. They have formed their their own nation. And and it's kind of a, a mixed bag for both empires. You've got two separate nations now that have been formed. The northern empire is just one long line of evil kings. There's not a single good king that comes to the throne in the northern empire for their entire existence. It's just one evil king after the next the southern kingdom has a few good kings mixed in with it but both kingdoms at different times as we've tracked through the story each kingdom has had periods of instability and periods of difficulty but the period we're going to enter into tonight this is going to be the next few chapters is really going to be one of the most cataclysmic periods of instability that you get in first and second kings because here's what happens tonight We're gonna see where the king of the northern empire and the king of the southern empire are assassinated on the same day by the same man. Okay, so both kings are going to be killed. And what it's gonna do is it's gonna leave a huge, particularly in the southern kingdom, it's gonna leave a huge power vacuum. So that it's gonna lead in the chapters to come in the southern kingdom, an evil woman is gonna come to power. She's going to basically come to the throne, and it's going to bring terror for God's people in the southern kingdom. So that's what's happening in these chapters. We're seeing both kings assassinated, lots of instability is going to be happening. That's the big picture. Okay. But if you peel back one of the layers of the onion, going on underneath that big picture, what's really happening in these chapters is this is a story of God's judgment. That's what this is. So God has been saying for a long time, That his judgment is going to fall so the next couple chapters are um, I don't know another word for it they're bloody chapters there's gonna be lots of bloodshed there's gonna be lots of people massacred in the coming chapters these are really the sorts of chapters that make a lot of people uncomfortable there's lots of folks who claim to be Christians who do not like reading or studying the Old Testament and they don't like reading or studying the Old Testament because of stories like this because it's not just that these are bloody chapters these are bloody chapters that happen as a direct result of God's judgment. So it's not just bloodshed. It's bloodshed that God's sovereign over. It's, it's bloodshed, in fact, where we're directly told God is the one who's involved in taking the lives of these people. So this bloodshed is happening under the direction of God. And that is an image of God, especially in our day, that lots and lots of people struggle with. You, you, you run into this all of the time. There are so many folks who don't have any room in their theology any room for a god who judges any room for a god who would avenge his people they don't can't accept that at all and what that means is for a lot of people the god they believe in is not the god of the bible so so we're in a day where most folks think of god as he's mainly there just to pat us on the head and tell us how proud of us he is right he's just there to encourage and be helpful um, there's no no notion of a God who would avenge, a God who would judge in this way, but but that's who God is. That is an aspect. That's not only who God is, but that is an aspect of God's character. So we don't shy away from stories like this because stories like this are teaching us something important about God. Okay, so so one thing you if you read the Bible you can't escape is the fact that God is resolutely committed to righteousness. God is righteous. It's intrinsic to who he is. Well, part of God's righteousness is he is absolutely, unfailingly committed to justice and judgment. That's intrinsic to his righteousness. Committed to justice and judgment. Just a few verses on that. Listen to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 he is the rock his work is perfect for all his ways are justice a god of truth and without injustice righteous and upright is he or psalm 89:14 righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne Mercy and truth go before your face. I like this verse. This is describing it like the two pillars that hold up the throne of God are righteousness is one pillar and justice is one pillar. In fact, you realize that in the end, not only will God be worshiped, not only will God be praised for his grace and his salvation, but in the end, God will also be praised for his justice. God will be praised for his judgment. Listen to this scene from Revelation. This is when God has just judged I mean vehemently judged wicked Babylon Revelation 19 1 and 2 Babylon is now in smoke under the judgment of God and it says after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying hallelujah salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God for true and righteous are his judgments because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Do you see what's happening here? It's like heaven erupts worshiping God. And what is heaven worshiping God over here? The hosts of heaven are worshiping God for his judgment. Okay, so we don't shy away from stories of judgment. And that's what we're going to have over the next few chapters. These are going to be stories of judgment. Peel back the lay- onion one other layer. So we've got the kingdoms, uh, cataclysmic things happening. Both kings assassinated. Under that, this is a story of God's judgment. But underneath that, something else that's going on is we've got a couple loose threads in the story of First and Second Kings. Because one of the things that's happened, this is way back halfway through 1 Kings, is God has made a couple of promises that haven't come to fruition yet. Specifically, God has made a couple promises regarding judgment that haven't come to fruition yet. So we've got these loose ends dangling that haven't been resolved. What about these promises that God's made? Is God going to keep his promises or not? I'll, I'll just highlight two of those promises. One I mentioned to you briefly two weeks ago. Do you remember back to the story of Elijah in First Kings where Elijah is at Mount Horeb after the Mount Carmel experience? And Elijah is heartbroken because things haven't gone the way he thought they would go. And it's that great story that, that, in my opinion, gets horribly misunderstood about... Elijah hearing the wind blowing and that's turned into a story about hearing the still small voice of God and It's it's, this is one of my pet peeves with the with that story is that's turned into a story about The main way you hear from God is you need to listen for the still small voice of God in your heart And that's how you hear from God that is not what that story about in any shape or form Okay, it's not about how Elijah heard from God. He doesn't hear a still small voice in his heart in that story Elijah hears God speak in that story audibly And god speaks to elijah with legible words audibly in that story so it's not about how we hear from god it's a story about how god moves god is making the point through elijah that the way that he is working is is mostly in less obvious ways god is not mainly bringing about his will through fantastic light shows and grand miracles most of god's work now is being done through the work of providence. And providence is not a hurricane. Providence is a gentle breeze where you oftentimes don't even realize it's blowing. Okay, so that's, I I keep getting on that story every time. I can't mention that story without talking about that. But one of the things that God does in that story is he tells Elijah how his providence is at work. So Elijah is absolutely depressed because he's fearful if fire from heaven can't turn things around and bring about God's will in Israel, how's God's will ever gonna gonna be brought about? And God says that he's gonna bring about his will in in less dramatic ways. He's just gonna move empires into place and bring different kings to thrones. And he specifically mentions three pieces that he's gonna move into place in Israel. Listen to what he says, 1 Kings 19. The Lord said to him, this is God speaking to Elijah, here are three things he's going to do to bring about his will that are not as dramatic as fire falling from heaven at Mount Carmel. Then the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. One thing, Hazael is going to become king. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Second thing, Nimshi, king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of El, of uh, Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. You see, three things he tells him he's going to bring about. Elisha is to be anointed to follow his ministry. Um, Hazael is to be anointed king over Syria. And Jehu is to be anointed king over Israel. So which of those things have happened so far in our story? Well, Elisha has followed Elijah as prophet. One more has happened. It just happened here a chapter or two ago. Hazael has been, has assassinated Ben-Hadad and Hazael has become king of Syria. But what about this guy, Jehu? So 10 plus chapters ago, we were told that God is going to bring about judgment in Israel by bringing this man named Jehu to the throne. Jehu hasn't come to the throne yet. Okay, so there's, there's a loose thread dangling there. One, one other loose thread that's dangling in the story. Uh, one of the things that God has most uh, profoundly, powerfully declared his judgment on has to do with Ahab and Jezebel. We were told that there had been no king that provoked God to anger quite like Ahab had. He was the, the leader of the people of God, and yet he was trying to turn those people away from God. And the, the force behind the throne during Ahab's reign was, of course, his evil wife Jezebel. Jezebel was a pagan, Jezebel wanted to do everything she could to blot any memory of Yahweh out of the land, to replace the worship of Yahweh with the worship of Baal, so she kills prophets, and she builds pagan temples, and because of all this, God had said that he would kill Ahab, not just kill Ahab, he's going to blot out Ahab's whole family line, and he has said that he is going to kill Jezebel in a very dishonorable way. Well, so far, Ahab has died, but Ahab's son is still sitting on the throne. And Jezebel is still well and kicking. And so you come to this point in the story and you're wondering, well, God promised judgment, where is the judgment of God? If God's judgment is real, why hasn't it come yet? And that's that's actually a question that comes up in the Bible in both testaments. Do you remember one of the New Testament epistles where this same question comes up? where the New Testament author is talking about God's judgment and he mentions the point that there are some people who are going, well, where is the judgment of God? Listen to just a few verses out of Second Peter. Second Peter 3, picking up in verse 7. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What, what is Peter saying is coming there? There is a day of judgment coming. Peter's warning about it. But Peter's facing some people who are going, where is it, Peter? Right? You've been saying this for 20 years. I haven't seen judgment. So this sounds like empty talk. And we could, that would be even more profound for us. I mean, here we are 2,000 years after Peter made these pronouncements of judgment. And there could be people who say, where is this judgment of God? I read all this talk in the Bible about judgment. I don't see the judgment of God. So here's Peter's response. But beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. What, is, what point is Peter making there? That, that he's not on our timetable. E- even more, he's not in time at all. That the challenge that you and I have is, is life for us is a succession of moments. That's We're trapped in a timeline. We experience life one second after the next after the next. We can't get out of that. One second after the next, one minute after the next, one day after the next, we're trapped in it. So when there's a delay, it feels for us like it's lasting forever. But that's not how God experiences existence. God does not experience a succession of moments where God is one second and then the next. God is over time. God exists above and outside of time, which means for God, one day is in front of him just like a thousand years are in front of him. So for us, something that lasts a day or a thousand years, it might seem like forever, but God's not trapped in this loop of impatience like we are. When God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill that promise. Okay, so that's the point that Peter is making here. He's not bound by the laws of patience like we are because he's not trapped in the timeline the way that we are. And so Peter follows that in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And by the way, what promise is Peter talking about here? It's a promise of judgment. It's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but His long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what seems like a delay in God's judgment, Peter is saying, what is that really? That's a, a mark of God's mercy. I mean, aren't you glad in your own life that God didn't give immediate judgment? Where would we be if God dropped immediate judgment? we would be done away with is where we would be every delay of god's judgment is a mark of god's mercy but here's how peter closes this little section verse 10 but the day of the lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with a fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up what what is peter emphasizing here at the end of that that it's happening God's judgment is coming, it is certain, and it is going to be terrible. So delays in judgment don't mean that judgment has been denied. God will judge just like he said he will judge. Okay, That's a New Testament principle, and that's also what's happening here in the Old Testament. God has promised, judgment is coming, we've been waiting for years, we've been waiting for chapters, it hasn't fallen yet, but we're going to be reminded that God's promises, including promises of judgment, are Sure, so do you you see the layers? We're having cataclysmic events happen. It's all a picture of God's judgment And then underneath that we're getting the fulfillment of promises that have been just dangling out there We've been waiting for those loose ends to be tied up and they're finally going to get tied up in the next couple chapters One more background point. I know it's a lot Um, Do you remember how chapter 8 ended? I know it was two weeks ago, so that's probably I shouldn't even ask that question Chapter 8 ended, the, the king of um, Israel, the northern empire, and the king of Judah, the southern empire, have a strong alliance. In fact, it's not just a friendship alliance, it's a family alliance. Do you remember that? So the king of the northern empire is one of Ahab's sons. Do you remember who the king of the southern empire is? He's actually one of Ahab's grandsons because one of the kings of the southern empire had married Ahab's daughter and it's their son who now sits on the throne. So you've got a son of Ahab reigning in the north, a grandson of Ahab reigning in the south. And so there's this very tight alliance between the northern and southern empire, which means the southern empire is starting to look more and more like the northern empire. And so what happens is is God's judgment falls and God's judgment is mainly being directed at the northern empire. But maybe a good way to think about it would be the southern empire has gotten so close to the northern empire that when God's judgment falls on the north, some of that judgment is going to splatter on the south. They've gotten too close. And so when, God's, when the fire and brimstone hit, they're going to get affected by some of it. So you're going to see both empires hit. Okay, all that background. Let's start reading. 2 Kings 9 verses 1 through 3. It says, and Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, get yourself ready. Take the flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel, and then open the door and flee, and do not delay. So get how the story starts. Elisha calls one of the prophets in training, one of these Old Testament seminary students, and he gives him very specific instructions. He tells him to travel north to Ramoth Gilead, Ramoth Gilead, You know, you have the Jordan River, and then most of Israel's on the west side of the Jordan. Well, Ramoth-Gilead is about 20 miles to the east of the Jordan River. And that's where the Israelite army has been fighting against the Syrians. Y'all remember all that from a couple weeks ago? So Israel and Judah, the king of Israel has led his army to fight Syria. The king of Judah sent troops to fight with him at Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel, Joram, got hurt in that battle. And he had to leave the battlefield, and he he goes back to Jezreel to recover. But he leaves the army, and he leaves all of his generals at Ramoth-Gilead. So Elisha gets this young prophet to go to Ramoth-Gilead. He sends him with a flask of oil and a message. And the message is, you find the commander, Jehu. You pull him aside, you go to, go to an inner room, and when you get to this inner room, you take the oil, you anoint him with oil, you declare to him that God has appointed him king, and then what's he supposed to do? Then run. Get out of there as fast as you can. Now why is it so urgent that he leave? Well, when he anoints this guy as king, what is he doing in essence? He's inciting a rebellion is what he's doing. And so Elisha is saying, don't wait around to see how this plays out. You deliver this message from God, and then you get out of there as fast as you can. That's the message. They're all right there with him. He he tells them to go aside privately, but they're not sure how this is going to work out. That's exactly right. Because if he gives this announcement, and some of the other army commanders are for the king, what's going to happen? Bloodshed is what's going to happen. Yeah, so he tells, now, why do you think Elisha doesn't go himself? Why would God have Elisha send one of the other prophets? You know, there to do you know, crazy. Yeah, Elisha being there would have been very conspicuous. Everybody knows Elisha. And so this whole thing, you'll see in a minute, this whole thing is being done in a way that's very much and intentionally under the radar so that people don't realize what's going on. Okay, so those are the instructions. Let's see how it plays out. Keep reading. Pick up in verse 4. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. And then he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. That I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled okay so he follows instructions he goes to ramoth gilead you have the commanders of the army who apparently are sitting around a table together he walks up and says commander i have a message for you so jehu gets up he leaves the table they go into some inner private place and he pours the oil on his head and says god has appointed you king over israel And then we get a little bit more detail of the message that Elisha had given him. What else are we told? What what is he being appointed king over Israel to do? Yeah, did you notice? In fact, notice how this is worded. Look at verse 7, where he says, he's talking to Jehu, you shall strike down the house of Ahab. This is what Jehu's going to do. But look at the last half of the verse. That I may avenge the blood of my servants. So Jehu's going to do it, but who is really acting behind this? God. So so God is letting Jehu know that he is being appointed as king in order to be the instrument of God's judgment on the on the house of Ahab. So God is going to use Jehu to fulfill his promises and to wipe out the whole family of Ahab. And I should just back up and say, you realize that we're not allowed to read ourselves into this story that I can't decide that God's called me to the ministry of Jehu, that I'm going to be his instrument of judgment in this bad situation, and that's not our role, okay? God has now given the government the power of the sword. It's the government's responsibility to punish evildoers and to establish justice. In fact, we're specifically told not to get vengeance. We we trust vengeance to God. I say that, you run into crazy people sometimes who like reading themselves into Old Testament stories, and they're the The Jehu against the abortion industry who's called to kill all the abortion doctors or something like that Okay, we don't we don't get to read ourselves into these stories Well, we're not we're not any of that's right. (laughs) Yeah All right um, One other thing in that story Did you notice what he said that he's gonna turn the house of Jehu into? I'm gonna make it like the house of Jeroboam and I'm gonna make it like the house of Basha. What does that mean? You remember Jeroboam? He was the first king of the Northern Empire. How long did Jeroboam's line hold the throne? Well, there was Jeroboam, his son reigned, and then shortly into his son's reign, the son gets assassinated, and the line of Jeroboam comes to an end. No other family member from Jeroboam's line sits on the throne. It's like God takes the dynasty of Jeroboam, balls it up, and throws it on the trash heap of history. What about Baasha? who was he? Same story, he was a king in Israel, he reigned, his son reigned after him, and then his son gets assassinated, the dynasty comes to an end, not another person from the line of Baasha would sit on the throne of Israel. So this is another dynasty that God sort of balled up and throws to the trash heap of history. No other man from that line will sit on the throne, and God is saying that is the same thing he's going to do to the dynasty of Ahab. God is going to bring the dynasty of Ahab to an end, and we could expand on that. Ultimately, that's going to happen with every single one of man's dynasties, right? Every empire that man will come up with is eventually going to be found where? On the trash heap of history. N- none of our kingdoms, none of our royalty, none of our empires will endure. There's, there's, in fact, only one kingly line that is going to last forever. What line is that? That's the line of David. We're promised the Messiah is going to come on the line of David, who's going to sit on the throne forever. But every other human empire is going to end up, ultimately, at the same place these empires ended up. So he's promising it's going to be done away with. And specifically, why is God's judgment going to fall?